Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what happens if we design babies? So designer babies, this is a phrase that you've probably heard for decades now. Yeah, and we're not talking about babies that you get from a branded store. Talking about babies that you genetically engineer in That's some right. fashion, yeah. We're talking about um, what they call germline engineering, which is specifically when you do uh, editing that can be passed on, right? Isn't that what? Isn't that the definition of that? Right. So to contrast it with other types of genetic engineering, you could uh, change uh, something about, say, an adult human uh, that doesn't affect uh, their children. Right, so you could... Uh, right, this is called uh, somatic uh, engineering, right? Because right. it's a body cell. So you uh, you target some body cells, like maybe they got some cancer in them or something. Sure. And uh, you uh, you cut out the bad genes, you put in the good ones, you get out of there, the, the organism lives, but its progeny will be just as genetically likely to get the cancer as the father was. Right. Or mother. But that's not the type of engineering we're talking about. We're talking today, about no. changing the human germline so that there's new traits that will be passed on and will potentially affect our uh, species for generations right. to come. It's Which, like cleaning up the gene pool. And that's why it's such a fraught issue, right? Because right. the effects might be felt uh, far into the future. Well, and this is a big topic, I think, because there's been some advancements recently, right? I mean, we're, we're starting to... Before it was sort of science fiction, you couldn't um, even as recently as like 2015, I saw a thing where all the top experts uh, who were saying like, this doesn't work frequently enough to even use it. But that seems like right. it's changing now, right? So a big recent advance that our listeners have maybe heard of is CRISPR, which is an acronym. Uh, and I'm not going to go into all the details of CRISPR. There's actually many, many good videos online that can explain it to you. But the basic idea of this technology is that it allows you to make very precise cuts in DNA exactly where you want to make them and to do it relatively cheaply. So it it was an advance in, in I want to say it was about five years ago. I should have Something the like date. That. Yeah. But it was pretty recent. And uh, so it makes uh, gene editing potentially a lot easier. Now it doesn't, you know, it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it, um, it was sort of an unexpected advance that uh, makes a lot of this stuff sound more plausible today. Um, we have existing trends about uh, cheaper sequencing of genomes again i assume our listeners are aware of that that it gets cheaper and cheaper to actually find out what's going on in the genes and to record that information and you have other trends too that people might not be aware of like like in vitro fertilization ivf for short which is you know where you you know merge a sperm and egg outside of a living person a test tube baby if you've heard the, the like casual vernacular right and this is like a standard thing yeah. that's now done as a medical procedure yeah you know frequently but that's continue and that's been around for a while but that's continued to improve so success rates for that have gone way up and obviously once you're uh doing reproduction outside of human body you have improved options for manipulating it which is something we'll get into um, right, right. It's a lot easier to get at the cell if it's like in a machine than if it's in a human If being. it's in a Petri dish, yeah. Right, right. Um, so, and in fact, uh, people are already doing a type of germline engineering. Uh, so there's something called three-person IVF. 
which is where you produce a child that actually has three parents. Right, kind of. But the third person is the mitochondrial donor, right? Right. So the way that they're 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 doing this to get around some specific diseases that are carried in mitochondrial DNA. And right. mitochondria are a structure inside the cell that's not the main nucleus with most of the DNA, but they do have some DNA. Right. Um, so they're something that comes from the mother, basically. They're part of the egg. And what they're doing is they're, they've got a, a donor mother. The nucleus of, of her egg is taken out, and it's replaced with the, the nucleus, which is the vast majority of the genetic content of the, of the biological mother. And then uh, the father's sperm is used. So you get a clean egg that doesn't have any bad mitochondria in it. The reason you do this is because there are diseases that are carried, carried in, 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 in the mitochondria that you'd be trying to get rid of. Right. So you, you take mitochondrial DNA, which again is a small percentage of the overall DNA, and you replace that with a third person's. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and so... Uh, we've already had successful births in in Mexico and the Ukraine this way, and and these are very recent. I mean, again, we're talking about the last three four years here, mm-hmm. um, and that three person IVF is now legal in the UK, which is interesting because the UK is one of the places that has traditionally been the strictest about uh, these kinds of rules and and the the most wary of proceeding with this kind of genetic engineering, and and they recently said that this is okay with them. Um, so that's what's happening already. Right. Oh, well, you can see why that is, because mitochondria are not generally associated with a lot of um, the kind of determinative characteristics of your personality, the way that the the nuclear DNA is. The child that would be born would really still, for all intents and purposes, be the child of the, the two main parents. And the third parent is essentially just providing a patch that fixes this one yeah. Problem. Yeah, it's yeah. a good way to think of it. It's like a software patch. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, you could imagine they might be more wary if a three person IVF meant, uh, you know, two nucleuses being combined. Well, and someday uh, maybe we'll have that, and that would be fascinating. Right, which uh, is what I th- initially thought of when I saw three-person IVF on this piece of paper here. Um, but then when I looked it up, I was like, oh, okay, now I can see yeah, it's not as controversial. Yeah, it's not as crazy as you'd think. Right. I mean, it's not uh, a way for um, polygamous relationships to, to produce an average child exactly. <laughs> with all everyone's traits in, in equal amounts. Right. Um, maybe someday. But anyways, uh, g- going back to, to more direct uh, engineering, um, the latest big study... Uh, that I was able to find online, and this is as of this podcast publication date. So whenever you listen to this, we may have advanced beyond this. But so last August, um, an international team of scientists based in a few different places uh, in Oregon and California, also in Korea, used this new CRISPR technology um, to edit some some human embryos. Uh, now, this had previously been done in the last few years. People might have heard about this com- kind of research coming out of out of China. Right. I heard um, there was some some germline engineering experiments done in China with some some embryos, um, and that was those experiments were pretty unsuccessful. Um, this one went a lot better. The success rate uh, was actually pretty high, and I should say what they were trying to do, which is that they were targeting a very specific mutation that's pretty easy to identify in the DNA uh, that causes a type of heart disease. Right. So it's the kind of thing you'd want to target and get rid of. Right. Uh, right, it's not an ambiguous quality. It just want to get it out. Yeah, exactly. And right. it's and it's it was chosen because it's relatively easy to single out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had, I think, a roughly seventy percent success rate um, with the embryos that they had uh, of removing uh, the the disease causing uh, gene. 
Right. Now that's a 70% rate of CRISPR working basically, right? Of, of it successfully editing yeah. the gene. Right. And just for comparison, I saw a 2015 article that said that it was at 20%. And that similar, would be the Chinese study probably. Similar yeah. work. So that's a significant improvement in two years. Yeah, yeah. So while this is also not perfect, uh, it's much, much better. And it also um, had less of a problem that the Chinese studies had, which was there was a lot of um, unintended uh, like edits that occurred. And in this case, they, they were able to minimize or eliminate those. Now, again, they chose this target because it was easy, right? So it, it doesn't say much about what they'd be able to do with, with a more complicated disease. Um, but again, the, the idea that they were able to eliminate the diseases is exciting to say the least. Now there's a funny way that the study didn't go exactly as they planned though. Right. So CRISPR, all that CRISPR does is it makes a cut, right? So they, they set up the CRISPR to cut out the gene that they wanted to get rid of. Right. Right. And then what you usually do, and this is something that, that geneticists already know how to do is you know, to supply a new bit of DNA that they were hoping that the cell would adopt and basically use to plug the gap that was created when, when CRISPR cut it. Right, right, right. So you make a patch and you sort of send it in there and you hope it finds its... Right, right. And I, I don't, there's, there's ways to make sure that happens, but, um, you know, generally speaking, DNA tries to repair itself and it looks for a matching piece. And so it's, you know, the cell's already sort of set up to do that. So if you give it the right kind of coaxing, it'll happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had this this DNA template that they wanted it to take up instead, yeah, right, of the bad gene that they were getting rid of. But what ended up happening, and and I guess I should say that the disease in this case was carried by the the father's chromosomes, okay, right, in this experiment, and and the mother's chromosomes were healthy. So they cut the bad gene out of the father's chromosomes, and or chromosome, and then the gene. Or sorry, the cell completely ignored the template gene they supplied and instead grabbed a healthy one from the mother, <laughs> right? And used that to plug the gap instead, which was not what they were expecting. In fact, they were com- completely surprised by that, apparently. That's uh, interesting, and it suggests that maybe you don't even need the template in that. Well, it's somewhat limiting, though, if you can't plug the gap with what you want to plug. Because what if, what if right, the disease yeah. is carried on both sides? Well, wouldn't you just cut it from both sides then, and it wouldn't have anything... Maybe I mean again, it it was it was a case where it didn't work as intended. Right, right. Um, and we still have a lot to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I but it resulted in what you wanted, which is a, a healthy uh, cell ultimately. Right, which is uh, that is encouraging for future efforts. So that's interesting. That I mean, it does seem like the near-term use of this is not anything scary. It's basically just trying to identify some of the most harmful and easy-to-locate mutations that are out there, uh, of which we know of a few, and just eliminate them from our population, right? I mean, that seems like the the least controversial and most likely initial use of of this technology. Yeah, and there's a lot of talk about that now. Obviously, there's a lot of people scared of this technology, and we'll get into that for sure in this podcast, but... uh, you know, initially speaking, it seems like a consensus is forming around the idea that, you know, if, as long as we're cautious and we have some restrictions on this technology, that it makes sense to proceed with trying to eliminate some of these bad inheritable diseases. Right. Um, because who wouldn't want to eliminate them? Um, and, and that kind of speaks to the legality, um, because now we're talking about policy. So, 
Uh, right. Are we uh, are we allowed to do this? We are. There's no specific laws in the U.S., which is all I'm going to talk about, um, that yes. a- that actually ban this. However, there's no federal funding. No federal funding can go towards this type of work. Uh, so if I you see. privately fund it, you can kind of do whatever you want. It's it's a gray area. It's not banned. I mean, I guess it's you know. not banned, but it's like too abortion adjacent to get federal money or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so. <okay. laughs> So like the 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 FDA can't uh, su- supply any funding. Like I don't think any really any kind of federal funding at all can be used for this. Okay. So that's where it is in the U.S. In other Western countries, it's outlawed, and in most places, it's at least restricted. You know, it's not. It's something that generally governments are proceeding with caution on. Um, yeah, no, I guess that that makes sense because the possibility for abuse is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the technology, you could create potentially human creatures that would suffer in some way yeah and so the embryos in the study we were just talking about were, were discarded after a few days i mean they they did not grow into living things um now the, the type of editing that we're talking about in this study is not really the only way to get to designer babies um and so i want to talk about one other way we get oh. there that's a lot simpler because this might actually be what the kind of thing that we lived through long before we're doing really precise editing maneuvers so I, I was reading some writing by a guy named Henry Greeley, um, who uh, teaches at Stanford. He's a, a bioethicist. He wrote a book called The The End of Sex and uh, The Reproductive Revolution, or some some titles roughly like that. Okay. Um, and I thought what he had to say was interesting. Again, I don't know uh, how widely this is agreed with, but it, it made sense to me. He was talking about something called Easy PGD as being the first path designer babies right and what's pgd so pgd stands for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis pre-implement pre-implantation genetic diagnosis so so that sounds like you're screening the eggs before you implant them to grow into right babies so earlier we mentioned ivf because this requires i step one is in vitro fertilization Right. right so usually you would be talking about a couple that's having fertility problems they're not able to get uh a child the normal way so they opt for IVF, right? Um, the the woman donates some eggs, the man donates some sperm, and they produce some embryos in a lab. And that's before they implant any of those embryos back in the mother. They do this pre-implantation screening of sometimes multiple embryos. I mean, it can be as high, like apparently 15, I, I was reading, is, is like a good target number. But you might get less than 10. I mean, but that's like the ballpark for the number of embryos they might be able to make, depending on how they harvest the eggs from the mother mm-hmm. um so you have multiple embryos to choose from so you might as well implant the best one and you might as well screen them for uh worrisome genetic conditions right and they already do this right to some extent yeah this happens all the time yeah, yeah. um so like they definitely check for down syndrome before they put it in for example right sure there are things that are that are relatively easy to to, to check for easy to see yeah and that's yeah. the other reason you might opt for IV, ivf right is if you're at risk of certain things if like you have right. a high chance of a child that has some kind of condition um you might offer this slightly more uh not slightly more but actually a lot more onerous <laughs> process um of reproduction uh because it's worth it in the long run if you can prevent your child from having a life-threatening illness right um so easy PGD, which is what Henry Greeley is talking about, would be if technology got such that this wasn't such an obnoxious process so that like any old set of parents 
um, might opt for this instead of having babies the traditional way. Right, right, um, right. And now a, a few things would have to be required for that to happen. Number one is you'd have to be able to get a lot of eggs a lot easier, right? Um, now, uh, there's sort of a range of how easy that could be, right? You could... Um, there's versions where you might like extract like a slice of the woman's ovary, which is still invasive, but you might be able to freeze it in such a way and use it to produce thousands of eggs after that point. So you have this one-time procedure that then you can produce many, many embryos from. Right. Um, right. Next step up from that would be to use stem cells. Right. Which nowadays they can produce from like your skin, right? So you could. So they've done that with mice. I don't know if they've done that with humans yet, but that, that, that would be the ideal, right? Right, right? Would be that like, the man donates sperm, which is easy. Right. The woman just donates some skin cells, which would also be super easy. Right. You're in and out. Um, and then they're able to use that to pr- harvest a ton of embryos. And then you essentially, if you also have another technology, which is m- better, uh, you know, basically sequencing and genetic screening, and, and so that you actually have many, right. many different types of traits that you can identify, then you can kind of look at this menu of possible children that are all children that are of your own DNA, right? And you can kind of select the best possible child that you and your partner could theoretically have from, from this list. So it's, it's not, you're like, you're not designing from scratch. You're just kind of optimizing for. Yeah. This is baby optimization. This isn't designer babies, right? This is like, you're, what you're doing is you're, yeah, you're, you're increasing the amount of possible combinations that you uh, create. And then you're screening them at the best possible way to pick the, best selection of probabilities but then you still have to like you know it's still a considerable dice roll uh because there's still a lot of things we don't know and then there's still a lot of things that are not genetic which we we should talk about a little bit later but it's uh, true but if i mean but if you're able to have like a hundred uh possible embryos like like pick from a hundred possible children the best one i mean there's some range there i mean sure absolutely and i think the biggest range is again with like these diseases and stuff right you could almost certainly eliminate any uh deleterious problematic uh mutations that that had come up yeah and it's possible you could maybe select for other things um so so i mean here here's what this guy henry really claims right okay um he says uh quote better than normal chances of avoiding other diseases preferred hair or eye colors slightly better chances of high math sports or musical ability um and parents preferred sex um the health and behavior differences are likely to be about the same as the average differences between being born to rich parents and poor parents not enormous but also not trivial now this is pure speculation from this guy right but it gives you an idea of what what point out quickly that we don't really have any idea what the diff what the what the that metaphor is very bizarre because we don't know what the advantages of being born to poor versus rich parents are that's extremely hard to no but i kind of but people, I'm, people argue about that constantly but i'm glad that that's brought up because i think you know we're going to get to this kind of rich poor divide later in the podcast right so i, I right like, but yeah i mean how do you so that may actually be a tremendous thing or it may not be i don't think we really know but um but i think his point his earlier point sounds right you'll be able to choose their sex their hair or eye color which are things that are like kind of arbitrary and then you might be able to um, give them a little edge in some areas, but we don't have, mostly it seems like what you'd be able to do is prevent bad things from happening to them because most genetic variation is, is 
bad, right? I mean, most of these mutations just lead well, to diseases. Well, okay, so so this leads into the next topic, right? Which is like, how much control could we expect to have? Or right? just how much better can you really make a person is sort of maybe what I'm getting at. Well, I mean, think of the best person you know. I mean, that's that's the top of the the, the known variation spectrum, right? So right. like, you know, and think of the worst person you know. I mean, that's that's the scope of human variation as we know it. Right, but how much of that is due to genetics and not to, you know... Um. I, I mean, epigenetic phenomena. Uh, it seems like we don't know the answer to that. It's it's complex, and that it's right, right. I mean, if, if your point is that quantifying this stuff is difficult, then yes, that's that's obviously true. It just doesn't seem like we have strong evidence that we could really make Superman with with this kind of thing. No, it no. It's like we have mostly evidence that... No, and that quote get, starts with, easy PGD will not produce super babies. Yeah. I think that's important to stress. Maybe yeah. maybe that's just all I'm getting at is I don't think we can... I think this is a thing where we can eliminate diseases, we can give people minor edges, and then maybe in the future we'll, di- we'll discover things about genetics that allow us to give them real strong edges. But I, I don't know. It seems like at the current moment, it's a relatively minor and relatively uncontroversial. But I honestly think that, that these small it. changes actually potentially make a big difference. Like that's the thing is I don't I don't think it's so insignificant. I mean I, I agree that they're small, but I think those small changes might might mean a fair amount. Um, and and as far as like the amount of control, again, like there are huge skeptics on this front. And let's go back to the the larger idea of actually trying to modify uh, genes because the other thing that you know if you had this easy PGD, I mean that doesn't mean that you only have to use selection. You know, if you also have some CRISPR technology in the wings um, and you make it easy for people to do IVF, then you also make it easier to do CRISPR and to do a mix of both selecting the best embryo you want and also once you've selected that embryo, making a few modifications. Sure. Right. So what are the kinds of modifications you could make? And again, I think they sound they're going to be not things that turn you into Superman, but there might be some sort of low-hanging fruit. And the thing is that that's not going to be determined by us. That's going to be determined by nature, right? So right. it's not like um, things that we might dream up that we want to do, which, again, it's fun to think about those things. And eventually we might be able to be like, I want to make my child exactly six foot three inches tall or something. And maybe someday in far, far future you can do that. But that would be the kind of thing that wouldn't be possible. Height, for example, is like something that's multiply determined and super complex, apparently, and mm. and not an easy thing to target. Um, but there will be some things that are easy to target. Now, w- some of them are these genetic diseases that are like single point mutations, right? Right. right. Um, but there's likely to be some other beneficial things that just by virtue of random uh, evolution ha- have made themselves relatively easy to edit. So what's going to be on the menu is not going to be up to us. It's going to be up to nature. Like the accidents of nature. Right. 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 Um, so I saw now there's a guy named... Um, George Church, who's a, a geneticist at Harvard. So he put together a list of, of 10 um, rare, protecti- rare protective gene variants that might have a reasonable sized impact if you were to modify them. Okay. Um, and this is just one person, geneticist's opinion. But I thought this was sort of interesting of uh, and maybe instructive of the kinds of things we might expect. So um, he's identified some gene variants, um, one that's associated with extra strong bones, One's associated with lean muscles, insensitivity to pain. Now, that one could be dangerous for obvious reasons. You but, need- well, but the, the the scope of variation there is people are... Is he saying that these are we should 
that this that I'm sorry, I don't maybe I don't understand. Is he saying that that these are things that we should edit so that we could change how humans are, or the, he's just saying these are places where the current variation could be taken advantage? No, no, these are these are gene variants that we have identified in individuals Got that it. are rare. Not everybody has them, but Got the it. rare individuals who have them tend to have these other traits. Got it. So if you have this particular gene, then your sensitivity to pain is less than other people's, right? Yes. Or yeah. at least that's the current evidence. Got it. Got Again, it. this stuff is complicated. Right, I don't right. I don't have the like underlying studies, but right. um my point is more like there's a list of things here and it's it's there's gonna be some number of interventions I'm guessing that will be easy to make. It might not be the ones that parents would wanna make. Right. Or the ones that you'd put on your dream list, but there might be some options there. Right. Another one is low odor production. Virus resistance, low coronary disease, that sounds good, low Alzheimer's, low cancer, low type 2 diabetes. Again, these are things that people have studied. Again, a lot of them are disease-related. Right. Right? You want to find, like, why do are certain people don't seem to get these illnesses, and that's how you end up identifying some of these gene variants right. that seem associated with, like, a low likelihood or low probability of having these things. So, I mean, and you're always going to be dealing with probabilities, right? You're always going to be... You know, if I make this change to my child's embryo, you know, I'm I'm boosting my odds and of not getting cancer, you know, maybe by two percent or something. Right. Um, some of them might be very small. Some of them might be very large. Again, I don't think um like there's nothing that says that there can't be a few silver bullet genes in there. I just think it's gonna be random which ones those are. Right, right. I think most of the silver bullets are the kind of silver bullet where you're undoing an a terrible error. I, I'm not sure about that. And I'm not, again, I'm not sure. I think the reason that people are talking more about diseases currently is because that's the less ethically fraught thing to do. That's the more culturally accepted thing. Well, that's certainly the case. Is to well. target, um, you know, gene variants that are, that are dangerous because that it's pretty easy to get on board with. Like we don't want this child to be born with a terrible blood disease. Let's get rid of it. Right. Whereas like optimizing the child's muscle mass or something seems a little more sketchy to a lot of people. Um, well, I mean, giving a person lean muscles mostly just makes them healthier or strong bones. So I feel like that doesn't feel ethically fraught to me either. Like increasing someone's oh well, I'm I'm, I'm bones. I, I wasn't saying that. I was saying or, I was saying that there's a we might as well get into it. But there are people that have problems with enhancement versus versus healing. Well, at this point, we're not talking about enhancement really at all, though, because we're only talking about gene variants that have been identified in the human population. So by definition, those can't be enhancement. I'm not talking about enhancement at a species level. I'm talking about enhancement at an individual level. In other words, Uh, if you have an individual that wouldn't have had the best gene for something and you give them the best gene, you've enhanced them. I see. Well, then, okay, then I would disagree with those people because I feel like that's just, uh, it seems like our, you know, it doesn't seem like that ethically holds. Like we enhance ourselves all the time. Right. Okay. We've already crossed that, that river in a big way. Sure. Well, and, and I don't think it's going to be any surprise that uh, probably both you and I, um, like heading into this, you know, discussion, we're going to be probably more receptive to the idea of, of modifying people uh, to benefit them. I mean, we've done past episodes on transhumanism. We've been pretty sympathetic to that point of view. Right. Um, but, you know, it's a concern that people have. We might as well just dive right now yeah, well, in, talk, into the ethics talk, of this. Let's talk about the ethics. Um, there already. Because, again, when, when I was doing research for this, uh, there's just, like, a lot of articles that you read that just have this tone, right? Yeah, I noticed that, too. Um, and, and, and they don't even... Sometimes they're not even offering any arguments. There's just this general scaremongering. And I, I literally saw one uh, essay that 
gave some weak arguments, and then the third bullet point in their argument was literally, quote, the ever-present specter of eugenics lurks in the shadows, end quote, which is like a... Some version of that phrase yes. was in almost every article I read. Right. Um, the specter of eugenics. People love that for some reason. Right. Um, and of course, that's just like, uh, you know, people are still upset about Nazis, understandably. They've kind of... Well, there's two separate ruined things. Ruined branding right? for this stuff. Eugenics is bad, right? Yeah. But eugenics doesn't have anything to do with well, whether or not you're well, using... Well, hang on, hang on. I got to stop you. Why what? is eugenics bad? What are you calling eugenics? Okay, well, I guess what I mean by eugenics is... Uh, enforcing some sort of idea of pure purity through some sort of violence or sterilization or other uh right so the not the nazi germany version of eugenics yeah sure or any any eugenics program that's about breeding out um undesirable people (laughs) but not based on you know uh that that is inherently bad but i feel like you don't need any of this technology to do that obviously they did it in nazi germany and you also the technology seems totally separate from whether you have a culture like uh well hang on here's another like what about uh our uh, gattaca right sure so gattaca is this genetic apartheid world right that's the basic premise is that uh, everybody's genetically screened and if you're like in the good genes, you go in one world. And if you're in the bad genes, you go in a different, you know, level of society, caste, whatever. And then it's a love story or something on top of that, right? So the the main premise is that, you know, it's bad to divide society based on genetic markers. Right. But I, to right? me, that's a, now we've moved into a different issue, which is, I think, this like, which is a, another concern that people have is this like bifurcation, this rich, poor access divide. I mean, Gattaca essentially have an underclass, right? Um, right, but and it, an overclass. Now, am I remembering wrong? I don't, isn't it just based on your genes, though, not on your wealth? Is it about? Isn't it like you get the wealth because your genes are good in that movie? No, no, I agree, but I think it, it's similar to the concern. One of the concerns that people have, and and wealth is one of the ways they see us getting there, right? Is that uh, this is going to be available to some people and not to others, and that there's going to be this stratification in society? Now, whether that's as a result of money or just personal choice. Um, and like exactly how it works in Gattaca, the point is like you have this splitting of society into like two groups. Right. No, that feels like a completely different issue to me because that's about like, there's... Yeah, that is a different yeah, issue. That, yeah. I thought okay. that's what you were bringing up. But like, I mean, going back to... Uh, no, I wasn't bringing that up. I was yeah. just saying that like the basic... I Saying that eugenics lurks in the shadows of this technology is weird to me because eugenics already happened without this technology. We didn't need it do this to do to do should we define eugenics though? how do you want to define it um so I, I just looked it up here so it says the science of improving a human population by controlled breeding or in this case engineering to increase the occurrence of desirable heritable characteristics well okay i mean i would be against that as defined why is that because i find desirable heritable characteristics to be too vague and because controlled breeding uh imp- as an umbrella term contains too many things that I would oppose, but not every type of breeding uh, that has uh, changes to it uh, is necessarily something I would oppose. So for example, uh, do the parents uh, have consent? (laughs) That's an incontrovertible issue, right? Um, If you're 
if your controlled breeding program involves right. lack of consent of parents, I don't support it. So that takes us into into, into policy, right? right? Now, again, the spec when we're talking, the, the reason I didn't like the quote, the ever-present specter of eugenics lurks in the shadows, and people constantly bringing that up without explaining it in their articles, is because, you know, we're talking about a, a technology here that can be used for great good or, or possibly for evil, I suppose. Um but I guess what they're implying there is maybe some set of policies and maybe what you're talking about is some set of policies that say would, would mandate certain types of interventions. Now, it's possible to think of some of those policies that don't sound that crazy. Like, for example, um, I know in China right now, they're really pushing this PGD stuff a lot and they're using it primarily to get rid of uh, you know, genetic diseases. And you could imagine a government as a matter of its health policy, partially because it's super expensive to have these children born with these terrible debilitating diseases, um, essentially outlawing you birthing a child that's going to be doomed to a life of suffering. And I don't, that would qualify as eugenics, but I don't think that that sounds particularly terrible. Um, I mean, you may or may not think that's the right policy. I'd oppose that policy. I I read uh, about um, what's been going on in Iceland because one of our readers alerted us to the idea that uh, in Iceland they have basically eliminated... Down syndrome at this point, I think mm-hmm. they had two or three births uh, with Down syndrome in the last year, and that's typical. And the way they did it is by uh, giving people access to these tests and having health professionals, which they have some kind of socialized medicine there, all sort of just tell people that the tests are available and that they can get them. And, and, and Right, so, and that can be done via yeah. the very crude method of abortion with prenatal screening, by the way. So that that's is how they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so they're prenatally yeah. screening and then they're aborting. Yeah. Um, that's how they're doing it. And so of course, Iceland is not a country where they have strong opposition to abortion, unlike you know Ireland, they're not Catholic or whatever. Sure. So that's part of why that's okay there. Um, and whether or not... The tone of the piece that I read was like, this is terrible, but it seemed to be because it represented so many abortions. So if you're not ever having these pregnancies in the first place, that is definitely a different ethical issue. Right. Um, but I think what they're doing in Iceland passes the ethical test because it's not coercive and it's having a, you know, they're nudging people and they're, they're, okay. their people are giving you, an, uh, but, but nobody is being mandated to do anything. So what you're talking about is prenatal autonomy, right? This is a, this is an ethical principle you could bring to this debate, right? Which is that, uh, Parents should have the have prenatal autonomy. They should have the right to decide what their birth is like, right? What their child is like. Well, whether right? or not so that, and how to create a child. So, yeah. that, so that's basically, I, I, it sounds like you endorse that principle. Yeah, I endorse that principle. Okay. So uh, I don't know what I think yet. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I think that, that in most cases that's probably uh, correct. I mean, even um, if it would be good for society to like kidnap a reluctant... Uh, genius and take their genetic material and make children with it i i would be opposed to that i think that's we well that's a that. straw man situation well i'm just trying to come up it's not a straw man it's just an, no i it's a reduction what of i'm talking about but i i just mean what if society said you said you're not allowed to have you have to get your child screened and uh you can't like bring a child the term that um is going to have cystic fibrosis um, because it's going to be super expensive for the state to take care of that, and the child's life is not going to be good, and we can easily uh, avoid that um, with this these pre-screenings, right? So, like, that would be, like, what, now, you might be against that policy for good reasons, but right. I'm, I'm just saying, like, that's, like, a more realistic right. version. Right, well, that's, that's, a, that's a strong version of that, and, uh, you know, it's all about who determines what right. um, qualifies, and uh, I 
strongly think that in a case like that where cystic fibrosis is a terrible disease that it makes you uh, suffer quite a lot, um, you could trust parents to simply make the right choice. And if you had a law that says you have to get the information, I would maybe be on board with that. But that's sort of as far as, as I would feel comfortable getting on board with. Um, sure. You know, I get that. I get that there are plenty of ways to use eugenics for good, Mm -hmm. but I think eugenics as a policy is a dangerous policy, but I don't think that um, we need to have a program of controlled breeding to use this technology. Like to me, this isn't, this isn't eugenics if it's not mandated. If, if people can't, if you define then I don't have any, if you define eugenics as including coercion, then sure. I'm on board with that. I just, um, I'm, I'm finding that phrase controlled breeding to in, imply coercion, yeah. basically. Yeah. So I, I might be more willing to bend than you on on some of these like really harsh diseases mm-hmm. um, that are really awful to be born with and might be, you know, super expensive for the state. But in general, I agree with you. I think this should be in the hands of parents. Now, there's a more extreme view that's out there. Um, so uh, there's someone named Julian Savalescu, and he uh, has created this principle that he believes is correct of procreative beneficence. It's kind of a hard word to say. Not, not a good buzzword, but, um, procreative beneficence. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically he was saying or arguing that it would be a moral imperative to give your child the best possible life that you think that you can give them. Um, which would extend, you know, and, and that, you know, he would argue that, you know, in, in other many, many ways, like we're already sort of like assuming that that's a moral imperative of parents. And this would just extend it to this. So in other words, he would say that like, if you know that your child's going to be uh, yeah. like born with Down syndrome and you could edit that out, say that the, you would be obligated to do so. It's a very extreme, uh, like, yeah, I mean, I get position. I get the 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 root position there, which yeah. is like I I think it's a goal of most parents to and a, and a mm-hmm. righteous goal to give your kid the best possible life you can, but um, that strikes me as just too hor- high a bar and too indeterminable a bar. I mean, even in the example of say Down syndrome, right? It's I think highly questionable. Now, if you can edit the Down syndrome out, if you can go in and take that extra chromosome out mm-hmm. right uh and then grow then i think you're you're sidestepping the argument that i'm making in my head here but if you How if the you choice s- is between having a kid with down syndrome and eliminating that pregnancy and not having that life exist right then i think you are have a much harder to me it's it's not possible to prove that that one is better than the other um, because obviously that person is a, a burden to society, but they have happy and, you know, relatively normal lives. Um, now something like cystic fibrosis is quite different cause that's quite painful. Right, right. Right. But, um, the, the developmental problems that down syndrome people have don't keep them from being happy and fulfilled. They, they cause problems for the people around. Well, them. And it gets more ambiguous than that too, because something that, uh, I, I was reading about China and something that, uh, some scientists are working on over there as far as like being able to identify with this, uh, PGD technology, um, is, is deafness. Um, it's right. not something they can identify yet, but it's something they want to identify. Right. And, and, Interesting. and that's like, you know, for some people that are deaf, they, they consider it 
a culture, you know, like unto itself. Well, it's it not, absolutely is a yeah, culture. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's there, it's, I think, even more of a gray area as to like what's good or what's bad. And yeah, I mean, to me, that's where that's an obvious place where mandating non deafness, I would not be comfortable with my government doing that. Um, right, right. For right, sure. Right, right. Eliminating genetic deafness, you could see that being a problem for the deaf community because it would reduce their numbers significantly. Yeah. Now we yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Now we've we've gone into policy here and I didn't I didn't intend to jump so much into policy, but yeah, so I obviously there's hard to disentangle these yeah, things yeah, right? yeah. because there is no one policy to to refer to. Right. So oh well. No, and, and policy is super important, but I think there's also grounds for just discussing what sort of moral stances you might take and, and, and choose fully of your own volition as a parent, right? So as a parent, you might buy this uh you know, procreative beneficence idea as your own personal moral code that mm-hmm. you're, you're feel obligated to give your child all the advantages, genetically speaking, that you're able to do using today's technology. Right. Um, you know, and that might still be with fully like a choice you're making and not something mandated by the government. Right, right, right. Um, but let's, let's go back to the, the deaf thing just for a moment. Sure. Right. Because since, since we already brought that up, um, I think a moral argument you could make again, not talking about policy here, Right. Is that uh, curing deafness um, is wrong because it, you know, essentially eliminates that population, which might uh, create problems for the existing population. Right. In other words, uh, you know, people might worry that um, if you push to eliminate what people might call disabilities, then you devalue the lives of those people that already have them or you divert resources away from them. Now, I find that to be kind of a weak moral argument, actually. Right. That feels like you're losing a consolation prize. It doesn't really make sense to me. It's like, it can be very much true that, like, deaf culture is a thing and is valuable, um, but that also it would be a better world where, you know, we had flawless cochlear implants that were cheap and everybody who's currently deaf got cured. Right? Right. You could hold both those ideas. I'd be willing, even though I do hold both of those ideas, I'd be willing to sacrifice a world with deaf culture uh, as a current present phenomenon. I'm not saying you can't uh, get together and wear earmuffs or turn your implant off and reenact the past and have museums and books and other celebrations of, of deaf culture. I'm just saying like, it would be okay with me if it died as a present going concern as a result of everyone being cured. Yeah. Um, obviously I wouldn't, (laughs) I wouldn't want to, I get why people would be concerned about the tail, the tail of like, as the culture, as the, um, if you, deafness is a tough one because people go deaf in their, in their lives. But, if we can think about something that's actually purely genetic, like a, like a different disability. Um, I mean, what about just Down syndrome? I mean, just use that. sure. I will just use Down syndrome as an example. So assume that we're breeding out Down syndrome, and that means that like every year we're having like basically no new Downs births. So there's now a dwindling population of Downs people who uh, need care of various kinds and they might get less resources or attention because exactly that, yeah because now there's fewer people fighting on their behalf mm-hmm. fewer family members of down syndrome people fighting on their behalf etc they're less of a constituency and in a democracy they might see less money less government attention mm-hmm. etc so yeah i mean that is that's that's worrisome but it's like the kind of worrisome that solves itself in a short amount of time you know i hopefully the society just like does the right thing and kicks in for that last generation of people who have an unfortunate problem, but then the problem goes away. That's Mm -hmm. what you would hope. Um, It seems easily outweighed by the benefits of getting rid of 
Down syndrome and future children, which in most cases is probably a plus, I would imagine. Well, it's like, I mean, again, that's one of the trickiest ones, because really what that means is that they're more self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately a world where that's not a problem is the better mm-hmm. world, you know, as, right. as and, much and- as it's, it's like a, you know, that doesn't, without, without taking any value away from the life of any person who has that thing, I think that's still true. Well, and we should maybe talk, we might as well talk about better now and what that means, right? Because right. obviously, um, you know, better is a subjective term, right? Like what is the perfect human being? I mean, this is sort of, sort of an impossible thing to define. Right. Um, I think you can just appeal to the fact that an individual parent in an individual situation has their idea of what would be better for their child. Um, in general, the population has an idea culturally of what would be better. Um, and that, that got, has to count for something, even if you can't, you know, maybe codify that in a really strict way. Um, I, I think most parents, again, as evidenced by Iceland would probably prefer not to have a down syndrome child. Um, all else equal. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, while I don't want to pass judgment on those people, I think that, you know, we can make certain calls like that about what isn't, isn't better. Right. Um, and, and I guess we got into this ethical discussion in a bit of a weird way, because I, what I was trying to, the reason I was kind of coming at it kind of defensively with the eugenics thing, and with the tone of the articles I was reading, is that I do think, I, I, I'm not sure what we're going to see, but I think the technology here has, you know, tremendous potential benefits. And I think there's a lot of knee-jerk um, anxiety about it that isn't super well backed up, Right. Um, now it'd be one thing if the articles I was reading was making sort of like nuanced, you know, policy arguments or were, you know, talking about this principle of prenatal autonomy or whatever, but they were just kind of throwing the word eugenics out there and just expecting their readers to be scared and, right. and, and not really diving deeper than that. And that's kind of what I'm responding negatively to. Right. And it's, I'm mostly yeah. scary. I mean, as much as I'm giving you some pushback on it, it yeah. is mostly scary because it is associated with racist Nazis yeah. and not so much because of what it is. I mean, there are things about it that, that give me the willies, but but I think if it had not been associated with racist Nazis, you would not be so worried about it. And I'm much more worried about this technology giving more supposed scientific uh, authenticity to racists and Nazis and those who are not exactly Nazis, but fill a similar niche in the world than I am about anything about this technology particularly. So how would that work? Because that sounds like a new concern. Okay, so what I'm thinking about is the following things. One, better genetic screening would Mm -hmm. allow much more information about individuals' genetics to be in the hands of governments or other groups, right? So, for example, like it might be typical in the future for when you get your blood tested at the doctor, they also just do your sequence, right? Now, it's a bit of a policy question who gets access to that data, right? right? That's But sure. But like, if we happen to have a draconian government, you could see but it. But this is a privacy access. concern, kind of? Kind of. It's a privacy concern in the sense that if people believe a racist ideology and they can look and say, you know, this trait, which is prevalent in white people, codes for something I find desirable, you know, um, then they can say, you have to have this trait or... You can't reproduce or we're going to kill you or whatever terrible thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, again, the bad thing here is is them being He's racist. Turning into Nazis. And turning into Nazis. Yeah. I don't want to vilify the technology, but I can absolutely imagine how bad people would use this technology to do the kinds of eugenic shit that Nazis did in the past more effectively. 
Sure. That's so. I think when people are scared of it, this is what I was trying to say earlier. Yeah. So, whatever. So I think when people are scared of it, I think that's what they're actually scared of. If you really were to drill down with them and and get past the the scary words, I think that's what they're worried about. Is they can imagine a nightmare state where these types of technologies are employed to Nazi like ends, but. I, and wanna, I think that's sold to people in a lot of science fiction. Absolutely. I and mean, that's and why, why they imme- their mind immediately goes there. Sure. And I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to be worried about. But I think the thing you should be worried about in that case are Nazi-like ends. <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, and, and seriously, I mean, you know, even in our modern world, we are not totally free of Nazi-like characters with Nazi-like ends. So it's not utterly crazy to think I would not like those people to have this technology uh, in their pocket. Um, but, but that's not the same thing as saying the technology is bad. And I, I, I see obviously that there's tremendous. Well, and the relevant, and and there's relevant policy questions as far as like, again, we talked about government funding, not going to this. Right. right? And so if people are, I mean, you want to be scared of Nazis taking over and using it, but you also don't want to be so scared of that, that you shut down the technology and don't, save people's lives with it no you definitely should so just there's a balance shut down there. the nazis that's definitely the better yeah approach. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, that's what i'm advocating yeah 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 absolutely okay so let's let's talk about it or try to articulate a few other concerns that people have expressed um sure uh one is that this uh kind of on some level dehumanizes the, the the children i mean the children are it treats them like objects of the parents to me this is you think that prenatal authority does that is that what you're saying? Or, um, or just genetic engineering in general? I don't think this. This is an argument I saw. Ah, okay. Just okay. to be clear. Okay. Everything I'm saying, I'm, okay. I'm, no, I, I'm, I'm, listing, I'm okay. listing arguments. So some people think that this would dehumanize children. And to some extent, that's correct. It does treat them like objects. But don't we already do that to a tremendous degree uh, in our law and in our culture? I mean, I remember... Uh, our, t- our old teacher Jim Kincaid talking about that in college, you know, how we hollow out our children and turn them into these sort of projections. So we could give an example, right? Let's say like, I really, really want my child to be a good soccer player. Yeah. So every choice that I make on my designer baby menu, I, ch- I check every box that looks like it's going to turn them into a world-class soccer player. Right. And, you know, I, I from the time they grow up, I've sort of already pre-decided that for them. Right. And maybe they're really into that because, again, I checked all the right boxes and they just naturally have this gene that makes them also love playing soccer. Well, yeah, good, good, good that many humans love playing soccer. So you have good, good chances there anyway. And so, you know, what's wrong with this scenario? It feels wrong, kind of, but I mean, it's hard to articulate exactly why it's wrong. It but feels it, wrong in exactly the same way that you know, Serena and Venus Williams upbringing and Michael Jackson's upbringing right. and any number of other uh, show parents and, and sports parents upbringings seem wrong. I mean, it seems like the parent is overstepping their authority um, uh, in shaping the kid's life like that. But on the other hand, many great performers and athletes and achievers in various fields come out of this sort of upbringing and uh, it's it's not entirely clear to me how this is really different if you're also doing some genetic picking. And where it also gets tricky, too, is if you select them for these things and they also enjoy the, the task you've, you know, engineered them for. Um, it, it's hard. It's hard to argue that there's a harm done right. when, when right. the, the living entity in the world is totally happy playing soccer. 
Right. I mean, if you're if you're trying at a certain point, if your child is happy, you could say no harm done. Well, it's a little bit like that uh, conversation we had with Robin Hanson about the M's, right? right? It's like if you it depends how good you do the engineering, because if you can really pick it and you can make them such that either they're so obedient or so naturally suited for what you've chosen for them that they genuinely enjoy it, then it's like, well, what's exactly the harm? Right. Like, okay, maybe it sounds creepy to us in the way that many new things do, but I'm not actually seeing the problem if there's no suffering on either side. Right. Now, on the other hand, if you, you know, can effectively make the kid strong and you can effectively make the kid practice all day, but you can't effectively make the kid like soccer, then you're maybe putting, you know, then you're in the same position that I think some of these sort of overbearing parents are now where you're overstepping, you have natural authority over the kid, but you're overstepping it. Mm -hmm. You're doing too much. Um, And, you know, I mean, that creeps me out, but it doesn't really creep me out more than just the current world. So that's one concern. Um, Let's talk about concern. I mean, this is an obvious one, but we should, we should talk about it, which is just safety, right? I mean, a lot of the first thing that you hear when, when people are are scared about this or articles are, are questioning it is, um, Oh, but it's 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 risky, you know. Uh, like, what about unintended consequences? And the child grows up, and there's problems. Um, and I would say yes, that's obviously a factor, but it's no different than any medical treatment. I mean, the same exact rules apply in the sense that, like, you want to make sure the benefits outweigh risks before you have an intervention. Any therapy that you do on healthy people is going to require probably a lot more testing than something you're doing for someone who's desperately ill. Right, um, or, or just corrective in nature, right? I mean, if we're all we're doing is pulling out the bad gene, that's we don't have to do as much testing. Well, what I mean is you'd be more willing to take risks with uh, in a situation where somebody is, their best alternative is suffering of some kind. Right. Right? Um, right. But yeah, I mean, with any medical procedure, obviously you want to make sure this stuff works and uh, it should be regulated like any other, you know, area of medicine um, to make sure that, you know, we're getting benefits that are that are worth the risk right now the only add-on that i would Mm -hmm. put there is that there is an additional potential delay yes in multiple generations Mm -hmm. so if because we're talking about germline and not in vivo somatic changes which those don't seem to have any of these sort of ethical issues um, yes if we take out the bad gene and it works totally perfectly but Three generations down the line, it interacts with other genes that are in the gene pool in such a way that, you know, it causes greater problems. We won't really have any way to know that in time to prevent it from not just from entering the gene pool in a way that is essentially unrecallable. Because once you have people out there breeding uh, with these altered genes, you can't very well tell them like you have to come in for sterilization because there was an error, right? I mean that that's that's going to have its own ethical problems if you go to try to right. do that. So I mean, obviously, you can inform them and 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 try to get there, but you 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 risk letting out into the environment um, basically a new mutation that could be deleterious in some you way. You could have some sort of delayed unintended consequences, right? You could have a gene that um you know has great improvements you know even up until age 18 but you know has problems that don't show up until later or like you but said it maybe have to be in that generation i mean it could be i mean what i mean something that shows up generations down the line for sure would be even more delayed i guess um and it could be only in the presence of other genes that you 
couldn't have possibly tested it with when you developed it sure. because there's so much variation. So you can concoct these scenarios. Right. I, I, and I think it's a real concern. Um, and there will probably will be unintended consequences because it's so complicated. I guess it's not my personal biggest fear, I guess, because the discussion itself shows what a slow moving process this is. I mean, you still, we're still growing humans the normal way. It still takes, a generation still takes, you know, 30 years or something. So, I mean, uh, there actually is a lot of time to observe what's happening and, and potentially advance our technological knowledge and, and pivot. And while I don't think you should recall people for sterilization the way you would recall a broken car, right. uh, you could inform them, hey, by the way, right complimentary of the government you might want to get that fixed you know again it doesn't have to be uh forced or coerced but uh, right well if it's possible to fix it after the fact then then that actually makes it um, much easier but i mean you got to imagine you know by the time we get two generations down the line i mean that's another 60 70 years of technological progress and knowledge about the issue and that's why that doesn't concern me as much because i feel like we have time we do have time actually like that's the whole point right right what well, um, the problem is test cycles are slow so before yeah. it's released you're not going to have the time to really check it out but yes you're right that the any problem would probably spread slowly and so if we are diligent it shouldn't be that big of a deal i'm also assuming our knowledge increases right so right, that maybe maybe we might have a better way to do a test cycle maybe we, our simulations are improved at that point and so on right um you know, that's not a guarantee, though. So, I mean, I, again, it's a worthwhile concern. Yeah. A- another very slow-moving concern is um, one that uh, Tyler Cowen wrote about recently. I saw his article, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've seen it elsewhere, too. It's not original to him, although he had some interesting points in his, his article. Uh, but it's sort of a concern about loss of diversity over time, right? Um, ob- I mean, most parents are going to agree about some things, Um probably easy to agree that if you know there's a gene variant that makes their child slightly healthier or more intelligent there's some like obvious things that you probably would go for there might be some less obvious things like maybe parents all want their kids to have blue eyes or something there might be fashion trends with babies i mean right and i think when people say blue eyes or blonde hair again yeah. it's that nazi spectrum. it makes people think of nazis and i want to just say there's nothing wrong with blue eyes or blonde hair there's just something wrong with thinking you would say that's that superior Right. Well, I have blue eyes. So that's why I say that. But no, I mean it's it's just about it's just about thinking that's superior. So as long as we are not Nazis who think blonde hair and blue eye makes you better, I don't have any problem with all parents choosing for aesthetic reasons blonde hair and blue eyes or or whatever. Right. Or whatever they. But I think some are. people do. Uh, or there's a concern that the population converges towards you know being more of the same. Right, because everybody's picking from the same menu, and they say, "Oh yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. That sounds good." And suddenly, um, you know, everybody's child is genetically more similar to everyone else's child in some fashion, and maybe over time, you lose diversity. Now, um, and and it's hard to say, like, you lose diversity in what direction, right? Like, what are we getting more of, and and versus less of? Right. right. Um, you know, uh, Tyler Cowen has an interesting study that he talks about where apparently uh, parents uh, on some surveys, uh, you know, valued traits that you wouldn't expect, like uh, parents valued extroversion over conscientiousness or intelligence. 
Yeah. Um, things like that. that and, uh, and agreeableness. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or obedience, which, you know, I, those aren't so so ama- amazing to me that parents would uh, prefer those things on a survey. I'm not sure that's the same as what they would pick when they were picking out a list of genetic sure. traits. And also it's worth pointing out that at this point, none of those things are correlated in a serious way with a, with a gene. They're not easy things to select um, for anyways. So, so we, yeah. maybe in the future, they you'd have a menu where you could choose agreeable versus not agreeable, and they'd be able to do that. But right now, it seems like that's like, not on the horizon. But like I was saying earlier, we're not going to actually choose the menu, right? So right. it's going to have some things on it. And that might, again, lead to less diversity if like, they just happen to s- discover that there's one really easy intervention that gives your child like much better health, and it just you know by sheer evolutionary chance that's an easy gene to change. Right. Um. Then everybody picks that one. Then all of a sudden your culture now has this. Everybody's got the same gene in common among the population. Right. But if it's a great health gene, I'm okay with losing diversity on that one. Right. It's as long as that gene isn't like. I feel like a lot of genes are this way. We're like, yeah, it gives you you know, protection against malaria, but it Mm -hmm. also gives you sickle cell. You know, it's the same gene because it's like the same mechanism that protects you against the malaria gives you the sickle cell. So if you don't live somewhere with a ton of mosquitoes, it's actually really bad. (laughs) Right, right. So So I feel like most of these things are more like trade-offs and we'll just sort of flip to the more useful, the more useful trade-offs. I I think generally there are a lot of trade-offs here. I don't think it's I don't think it's a hard and fast rule, though. No, like, like, no, right? Not. And for spe- speculative Definitely. purposes, I think you know we can imagine what happens if you ha- get some free lunches, right? Um, sure. In, sure. Uh, in nature, where you're not supposed to get them. Sure. <laughs> but uh, sure, and I, yeah. I'm for us getting some true free lunches, and yeah. if, if genetic diversity goes down in that way uh, uh, among the human population, I'm for it. But do you think like lack of diversity is itself a problem? I mean, I think that's. I think it's only a problem in the sense that like it creates. Uh, susceptibility to particular disease or, you know what I'm saying? Like it's a mm-hmm. problem if, um, if the lack of diversity um, leads to some disease that currently doesn't spread spreading because, okay. li- right. Or something like that. So disease so, vulnerability goes up with lack of diversity. It's kind of like any monoculture, like you think about monoculture farming. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's generally more efficient to just grow one thing. But what about groupthink? What about creativity? But you don't want, well, I don't think that genetic similarity will lead to less. Like I, to me, the I just don't. Uh, I I don't buy at this point in time until somebody shows me science that that's, that's that proves otherwise that we would be able to that we would have the result of more conformity just because we had more genetic similarity. I don't mean more conformity in the culture. Well, that's the only thing that I'm worried about reducing creativity is is cultural conformity. No, but what if everybody's just brains are more similar, right? And in other words, like, again, let, we have to get speculative here, right? So let's just assume a lot of the crazier stuff is possible, right? We're fast forwarding a bit. We're imagining some technology that we, we don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody does make their child um, agreeable and extroverted and maybe also smart as well, because why not? Sure. Um, and that's a certain type of personality. Sure. Right. Do you worry that that, you know, if you have a lot of the same type of personality, you don't have as many perspectives and it's you have those people are still creative and maybe not conformist, but they're all still have the same basic brain type. And there's ideas that you're are not being had by the population because nobody's representing these alternate ways of thinking. Well, listen, I could be wrong. I don't really know this, but my intuition is that the wiring of your brain that happens after you, you know, 
are born is more important than the genetic variation between the brains. And that, yeah, there is some genetic variation between brains, but I actually think all of our brains are kind of pretty similar and are all doing the same thing and that we have different perspectives because we have different histories, memories, and senses, and then we'll continue to have those things. Uh, I'd be more worried, honestly, about like some kind of worldwide institutionalized schooling or something, reducing creativity and giving people all the same perspective than I would in a, a genetic, a purely genetic thing that that doesn't, yeah, that isn't accompanied by a cultural revolution. No, I, I, I had the same thought when I was thinking about this. Again, th- these are not my opinions. I'm just, but yeah, but I mean, uh, I mean, that's just my intuition. I definitely don't know that for yeah. a fact. Yeah, well, I, I thought about brain plasticity and the fact that you know people are still going to have to fill different niches in the world because yeah. we live in a very specialized society where everyone has to be very specialized to work. Right. Um, and brains that are adaptable and that means that a certain amount of diversity is going to be forced into existence by people just fulfilling the roles that civilization needs mm-hmm. um now you can always ask the like what about the alternate universe where you didn't pursue uh that those like genetic interventions and would that be even more diverse and you know the answer is maybe maybe right we um, don't necessarily know because we don't know exactly what all the culling mechanisms are right i mean it'll give you more dice rolls so that's for sure yeah, right. uh, give you more random generators, but then there's also like a culling thing that's always yeah. happening, where some of those random uh, branches are getting snipped short, yeah. and it's not exactly clear yeah. how this affects. That. I guess like you know you can every once in a while like in history, uh, not even every once in a while, but pretty often. I mean you get you get different kinds of savants, right? I mean you get people that are sure. very outside the norm in some way. It stands to reason that at least. A fair bit of that must have been genetic, you know, maybe not all of it, obviously. And uh, those people are are not necessarily the kinds of people that uh, a parent would have chosen to have, right? I mean, maybe they're, maybe they create great works of art, but they're incredibly miserable, right? I mean, this is a common, you know, myth of an artist, but I mean, there are actual people that you could point to that fit that. Sure. But also there's not, there's a lot of different kinds of parents in the world. Yeah. And I feel like doesn't necessarily take a lot of them to be like no give me a curmudgeonly one <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like i could imagine myself doing that like just be like i'd be freaked out if my kid was happy all the time i want him to be okay. as curmudgeonly as i am uh yeah I I, <laughs> I I i can't play devil's advocate for this anymore I, i'm right. just gonna go ahead and say that I, I thought tyler cowan's uh article wasn't like very convincing at all in fact he starts out by saying pretty much that he just doesn't trust parents to make decisions which strikes me as like a very odd position for uh someone that's leans conservative like himself to say um or it it just seems sort of elitist i mean like basically i think that if we can't trust parents to have their children's best interest at heart i don't know who else we're going to trust that seems like the people closest to the issue with the like on the ground with like well that's the the crux of the issue of like child protective service right like i feel like that's how our whole society works is we expect parents to have children's best interest at heart right and there are that breaks down it's terrible for the kid (laughs) No, and there are cases, obviously, Child Protective Services proves that there are cases where society may decide to intervene. Right. Um, But, I mean, the first basic assumption is that parents know better than anybody else what's best um, and that you can safely leave that to them because their incentives are pretty closely aligned with the child. I mean, other than asking the child themselves, which you can't, I mean, who else has, you know, a more obvious... um, alignment yeah well they have alignment and they have cultural history behind them and yeah. there's there's a lot going for that relationship and i just want to say that like yeah there's so many different cultures and languages and perspectives in the world that even if 
every designer baby exactly replicated its parents, you know, mm-hmm. we'd still have so much diversity. I feel like, I don't know. To me, What they do here in the U.S. would not be the same as what they do in China, for example. I mean, again, right. already, like, the way this discussion happens in China is so utterly different. I mean, to them, like, like again, eugenics is not a scary word. No, it's a, um, it's a national policy. <laughs> At all. I, I mean, like, and the way they look, yeah, I mean, things like just getting rid of Down syndrome, they're like, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's like, it's right. not even a consideration. Well, right. Well, they have a billion people to pull out of poverty, so they're looking at this in a really different way. Um, but, like, I mean, I, I bring that up not to, like, you know, say that one way is right or not, but just to say, like, different countries are going to have different perspectives, and so... Unless it's another a, good example of a of a different unless it's a one world government, right. you know, and or a one world culture, it'd have to be honestly, which is pretty much it seems Im- at this point it seems yeah. impossible because even if we somehow got one government, you know, it'd be federalized the way the U.S. is, and we have many cultures right here in the United States. So, I think, yeah, obviously, to me, that Cowan article, while amusing to read as he always is, uh, did not. I agree with you. It did not make sense. <laughs> I didn't think. I thought it was like. General, con- like, small-c conservatism, just like, whoa, this is a change. I don't think we should do this, was maybe the only part of it that made any sense to me. And I can kind of actually, that I actually have a certain amount of sympathy with, just because, whoa, this is a big, powerful technology. And that's it. That's the end of that argument. I mean, you know, probably yeah. we'll still end up using it, and that's probably fine. But I could see somebody just being like, I'm uncomfortable using this big, powerful technology <laughs> that, that hasn't been used before. That seems like, you know, to okay. me, that was the only part of that that made any sense. So I, I don't think we've missed any, like, I'm sure we've missed some aspects of the ethical argument. That's all I can think of right now. Is there anything else that we want to talk about? Maybe let's get really speculative at this point, right? Yeah, like, I think that's the thing to do. Yeah. Uh, one speculative thing that popped into my mind that I thought was interesting. Um, actually, I was inspired by one of our listeners who had asked us, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what if he wanted a tail or an antenna? Mm-hmm. And then I, the specifics of that are just like, well, do you do you, man. But like, by the way, this was a, <laughs> a listener who goes by Tratcher on Twitter. Just yeah, to give him some thanks, credit. Tratcher. Um, I mean, go for it, do what you want. But uh, but I just wanted to generally talk about gene hacking, like the crazy stuff. Okay, right? so let's just uh, well, this is not possible now, but let's just uh, imagine a future where there's not just cheaper uh, sequencing, but where there's like much better modeling of what genes do in the body. I don't know exactly how that technology mm-hmm. is going to work out, but let's imagine a situation where you can write a gene sequence into a computer and you can click a button and then it can basically simulate for you a body and mm-hmm. give you some information about that body, right? And then you could do things like add a tail or an antenna by copying genes of other animals and adapting them until they work. Um, or, or you could even just go totally rogue and write your own code. My point is just that at some point in the future, it might be possible to either synthesize a human-like child directly in a computer or gene edit to the point where it's unrecognizable from normal humanity, right? Or where it contains elements outside of normal humanity. Things like tails or antennas, things like an eye that can see infrared, things like, um, you know... You know, that reminds me of a point I wanted to make, too. Okay. So, first of all, we were talking about diversity earlier, right? Right. Now, what you're talking about is super diversity. Well, this is a different kind of diversity. So, so yeah. obviously, once... A new generator. Once we get to this point, right, right then I think it's hard to argue that um, we're not going to have access to more diversity. 
And I guess like the way I wanted to connect it is that this crazy place where people have antennas and tails, right? We get there gradually, right? And the technology is going to change every year. So like all the babies born in one year, right, <laughs> might all have set as traits, but the next three years later, they might all have another set of traits. Right, right. So yeah, we might have these roughly classes, you know, like like the way you have a school class right. of people that were all born in the same year and they're all kind of a monoculture, but right. the monoculture is going to constantly shift. And then the end game is something crazy. It's these waves of conformity yeah. that we've talked about that exist elsewhere in the digital world. Where like, baby names. Look at baby names. Baby names It'll is be a like baby names. Where there's like, a, all Jessicas are going to have, you know, antennas and then all Katie's are going to have tails because of the year they were born you mm-hmm. know yeah and and it's uh it's like the and way all jessica's will be extroverted with tails right, right. but then 20 percent of katie's won't be because we'll discover that a generation of extroverts is fucking annoying right, right? and you need to have some people shut up or there's never a conversation <laughs> right but right. already like the the 10 percent of hipster parents like had gone that way in the previous year anyways right the right, the, the right. fashion setting ones. right but they're they're not named jessica you know yeah they're named beatrice and they're all friends with a jessica right you know? yeah no i mean that's how this works but yeah because this happens slowly over time i think there will be a lot of diversity and even long before we have tails and antennas which is still fun to Joke right, about. right, right. Well, so and that's a different kind of diversity. Yeah. Like uh, that's these w- the diversity comes in waves. So yeah. any individual cohort might be awfully yeah conformist. But right, right, right. And then if we can do in body in vivo uh, editing, then you might see uh, the trends starting to be more just like less about baby cohorts and more just about you know everybody is one way, but then the next day everybody's a different way. <laughs> Right, if you can you change as an adult. Because it just becomes fashion. Exactly. It becomes a fashion cycle like every other fashion cycle that we have going. Now, there's one more... Before we end the podcast, there's one more thing that I realized we overlooked. Okay. Which is, briefly going back to the ethics, we teased this, but we didn't talk about the rich-poor divide. Just because this came up right. over and over again in the stuff I was reading. Well, and this is... Is this exactly an ethical thing? Well, this is interesting. I mean, I think just the question is, how much do we worry about unequal access... Right. To this technology. Yeah. And I think that this is a big issue, but I also think it's just kind of the same conversation we're already having now about healthcare and medical access, right? Um, which is that it's unequal and we don't necessarily want it to be. Right. Uh, and so I, I, you know, it's also determined by things like cost, right? Um, when it pertains to this particular technology, how expensive is it to give your baby advantages? Right, right, right. Did we talk about this when we talked about longevity stuff? It's like, yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason that the fight that our culture is having now over mm-hmm. medicine and uh, access to healthcare is so important is because uh, right now, um, healthcare is expensive and it doesn't do a lot, but in the future, it might do a lot more. Um, this is one example of the lot more it might mm-hmm. do. And the more it does, the more worrisome the inequality is. Right now, the fact that uh, rich people get a little bit better health care doesn't bother me that much because nobody gets very good health care. We all die pretty much the same rate that we did when we didn't have health care. You know, I mean, it's it's not great. It's not terrific. But um, if it gets to the point where the genetic engineering is so good that you can really give your kid huge advantages over other kids and it's so expensive um or so restricted that only rich people have access to it it takes a generation to get cheap enough 
for the broad population. Right. Then, then you have a weird scenario. Then you have a big problem where, again, depending on your society and how it handles redistribution and how it handles generational wealth, because that's a whole big other can of worms. But assuming that we're talking about our society where we have basically no estate tax and if your parents are rich, you're rich, then you could potentially um, create a runaway scenario where like the very top of society gets so much more rich and capable than the rest of society that it can run the table, right? Um, it's possible. I don't know that it's the most likely scenario. I'm not even saying, I, I don't even think it's likely. I think it's, poss- it's within the realm of possibility though. Well, hang on. So let me introduce an evil thought. Maybe we can end the podcast on this because okay. we, we don't usually indulge in like dystopian, uh, cruel scenarios. Yeah. Well, but, but I'm feeling more dystopian these days. But this so did. Yeah. Well, things have changed. But this did. <laughs> this did occur to me as I was thinking about this issue because I had the same thought that you had. Yeah. Which is like their incentives, a combination of expensive treatments, right. right? And rich people just normally being incentivized to give their children the best advantages. Right. Um, could lead to this split in the population. But really key to that is the idea that the technology is expensive and remains expensive for a while before it trickles down. What if it could trickle down, but the rich people actually don't allow it to? And the reason you might be incentivized to do that is if you're giving your child advantages, they're not advantages if everybody has them, Mm -hmm. right? There is some, on some level, you could have a selfish incentive uh, to make sure that your children get some kind of technology, especially in this area, that other children don't. Mm -hmm. Could you see that happening? Could you see actually putting in place regulation that makes it difficult for certain sections of the population to get these treatments? Absolutely, and I could see them... Uh, selling that regulation to the affected population on moral grounds, on you know, on these ethical grounds that we've been discussing, basically prohibiting it, but then cu- carving out a loophole for themselves in a way that's either obvious or not. And that sounds like the like to me that sounds way more likely than Nazis, right? Is like I don't know. These days, Nazis seem pretty likely too. But yeah, I mean, it could happen. It could happen. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, that sounds I mean, that seems awful. like what we're primed for because people seem willing to believe that it is dangerous and needs to be controlled. And right. if they say, well, it's really dangerous and it needs to be controlled and no one's allowed to do it unless... And what that is is like, you know, you meet a bunch of uh, monetary and safety requirements that are difficult to, you know, that require a sort of, you know, apparatus to... Well, this will be done through the intellectual property system, right? I mean, like, there's right. patents on all this patents stuff. Patents and licenses. Right? And so they can keep the costs high. Yeah. And the companies that own those patents are going to be incentivized to keep the costs high because it's their bottom line, right? And, like, that keeps it expensive longer, and rich people are just kind of okay with that because their children are coasting through society a lot more easily with lower competition. Right, right. And you could, yeah, I mean, it it would be possible to get enough of an advantage doing that, that, you know, even if it then inevitably does trickle down, it's, you know, it's too late. It's not that different from like a foom scenario where, you know, eventually other machines become self-aware and smarter than humans, but it's too late because that first machine is already running the world, you know? Uh, Right. The rich people have already gotten such a 
strong lead that you can't catch up. That you can't catch up given the current, you know, capitalist game as it's set up. You know? What would be nicely ironic as a funny ending to that story, though, is that the parents can't catch up, right? I mean, you know, they, these are the evil rich parents concocting this <laughs> new generation, and then that new generation just leaves them behind, of course. Right. What, what good are my parents? Your genetically engineered child may be, you know, 10 times smarter than you are. Yeah, I mean, if that's possible, then maybe your your kids revolt against you, uh, you know, Olympian style, and uh, and they become the new gods, and you get relegated to the same trash bin that uh, you were trying to push the poor people into. And it was your own fault. Yeah, so there you go. We just uh, we just wrote you a nice uh, sci-fi concept. That was sufficiently well. weird to end the episode, yeah. so <laughs> thank you for listening. Uh, thanks for listening, and we will be back. Um, soon with more content. Until next time, I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.